Now entering Nerdist.com. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the host and creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel, which you are currently listening to. I'm also a TV writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Super Ninjas, and currently for uh, the DreamWorks Netflix program Puss in Boots. Check it out. It's now available. I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage program in the style of old-time radio that is now a podcast right here on the Nerdist Network every week. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more details. If you enjoy the Nerdist Writers Panel, please leave a review on iTunes and let us know who you want to see on this program by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds, and by liking this show on Facebook, facebook.com slash Panel. Now, here's a theme song, or an ad. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blacker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Uh, we got Matt Nix back. Welcome back. I'm back. Yay. <laughs> so good to be back. Matt, you have a lot going on. I do indeed. Um, complications mm-hmm. is about to premiere in a couple of weeks. Yes. Uh, tell us, give us like the, the kind of elevator pitch for this show and the premiere date and where people can see it and then we'll talk about it but then we'll talk about all kinds of other things complications is a brand new show on usa um it's about a an er doctor who's at a difficult point in his life who uh runs across a drive-by shooting and while he jumps out of his car to try to save this kid's life and while he's trying to stop this kid from bleeding to death he realizes that the guys who did the drive-by are coming back and he picks a gun up off the street, and he fights off the guys and ends up killing one of the gang members. Um, and with this sort of impulsive action, ends up launching himself squarely into the middle of a gang war. And so over the course of the season, the show explores, you know, how does he deal with this situation? Uh, especially since this kid needs a, a lot more saving. He's the son, turns out to be the son of a prison gang leader who is incarcerated and basically says you need to take care of my son or else Hmm. and uh, so it explores that but it also explores what it does to him personally to have taken his mission of taking care of a patient outside the hospital and so taking care of this patient now involves doing all sorts of things that have nothing to do with medicine and so once he's crossed that line what does it mean for all of his other patients? What does it mean for his home life? What does it mean for who he is as a person and who he is as a doctor? And the answer is it means a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of exciting things. There's, a, there's a, a depth there to explore. That's, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, it was really fun because I, I just I was really intrigued by the idea of what that would mean to you know doctors every day. I, I, when I was in high school, I worked in an ER and Every day, they're just sort of casually having to make these decisions that are like, well, you know, there's a 20% chance that this person is going to have a terrible reaction to this drug. But on balance, we should probably do it. We may kill them, but um, there's nobody around to ask, so we're going to do this right now. Mm-hmm. And that's a kind of decision-making that we expect from doctors all the time. But what if they did that <laughs> in contexts that had nothing to do with medicine? What if they said, well, there's a 20% chance that this is going to happen if I walk outside with a gun and, you know, but it's probably good for this person. And, you know, and so the idea of keeping this, this doctor very much in the mindset of a doctor, he's trying to help people. He's trying to save patients, but he's crossed this line and there's kind of no going back. You can't say like, well, you know, I, I saved this person by doing this thing, but I'm, I'm taking that off the table now. I'm not doing that anymore. And, 
and also it, it this all happens in the context of he's lost a daughter to cancer and really feels like he let her down and uh he missed things mm-hmm. and he is not going to lose another patient <laughs> and so that's the idea it sounds like it's, it's this sounds like the kind of idea and again I, it's such a huge canvas, like emotional canvas that you've set yourself to work on, but it sounds like the kind of idea that's launched from some some small seed. Mm-hmm. What what was that for this? Um, well, when I was about, uh, it was 12 years ago, um, I was living in Echo Park, which is where Training Day was filmed. Um, and it was sort of before the... Before Echo Park had really gentrified. Yeah, 12 years ago, it was a much rougher area. Yeah, it was area. a rougher area. I was, we actually, we were, people laughed at us for way overpaying for our house because we had moved into a terrible area. <laughs> and uh, my oldest son had just been born. And I was home writing one day, and the babysitter went out with um, Charlie. And while they were out, I heard a noise in the house, and I went to investigate, not thinking it would be anything and found a guy breaking into my house. Oh, wow. And I actually initially wasn't sure he was trying to break in. I wasn't, I it was so unexpected that I was very aggressive and I was like, Hey, what are you doing, man? Like get outside. Right. <laughs> and I walked outside assuming that there would be some sort of rational explanation for this, that it couldn't possibly be that right. I had just caught a burglar breaking into <laughs> my house. And I walked out. I was like, hey, man, if you want to come in, then you... And I realized halfway through talking, this is a gang, straight-up gang member, like, looking at me. He is very surprised because he, this was not the reaction that he was expecting. And so we have this interaction, and I'm like, hey, you should just just get out of here, all right? I don't want to see you around here anymore, which I guess is a line that I took off the show or something. Like, But I said it, and he left. Real cowboy. Yeah, exactly. Well, but th- that, here, this is the thing. He was leaving... And I realized he was walking in the direction of my friend's house. Hmm. And I was like, oh, wait a second. Like, this guy's a burglar. Like, right. he's going to do this again. And I just told him to just go away. Right. Like, can I do that? Hmm. And I was like, I should follow him. And so I followed him. And notwithstanding the fact that I was, you know, the creator of Burnout as a spy show, <laughs> which was after this, but like it turns out, I am not a good follower. I am not good at that. I do not possess the skill of following. Oh my God. And so I walk out and I'm taking down his license plate, and the dude straight up sees me. Like, no question what I'm doing, no question that he sees me. He knows exactly what's happening, and he gives me like the head nod. I call the cops, they come immediately. Sir, that was incredibly dangerous. You should definitely never, ever, ever do anything like that. But that said, like, hey, uh, we got a license plate. We never get that, right? And they call it in, and they're like, awesome, car stolen, right? We've got a case here. They catch the guy in the car, and in the car that was stolen. Why he drove it around for three weeks, I do not know. It was sort of, I mean, since he saw me taking down his license plate, I don't know. Um, apparently there's no like test to get into a gang. Like you just, they just let you in, but he, um, he was caught and the detective on the case basically took me aside and said, listen, man, just so you know, the headquarters of this gang is a block and a half from your house. Uh, that house with the barbed wire and the pit bulls, that's where they live. Um, and that is the headquarters of the echo park gang and they know you and they know where you live 
and you're a witness against one of their guys. So you should just, you know, know that. <laughs> I'm like, so do you do anything? And they're like, not really. You know, like, um, and so I ended up sort of getting drawn into this thing over the course of the next six months or so. And, but what was interesting was I, what sort of presented as this very straightforward situation, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like guy catches person breaking into bad man, breaking mm-hmm. into house. Uh, I realized over the course of this, this six months trying to deal with this situation, first figure out who he was, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I made a lot of connections with the neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? Ended up sort of figuring out who he was before the police did, right? And then when I actually ended up in court, I had this odd experience, which was I was sitting there and they were asking me questions and they asked like, so did he apologize after breaking into your house? And he actually had apologized. <laughs> he had said, hey, man, I'm sorry. I wasn't you know, I didn't mean to scare you or what, you know. And, and my response on the stand was, <laughs> you know, actually he did. For a burglar, he was very nice. Um, now, here that is an amusing thing to say. Now, the thing is, people don't say things like that in courtrooms downtown. Yeah. And on that day, it was the funniest thing anyone had ever said. The judge was laughing. The prosecutor was laughing. The defense attorney was laughing. And the dude was laughing, right? Sure. And afterwards, I got off the stand, and he gives me this look, and he's like, hey, man, I'm sorry. And I'm like, well, no harm done, you know, whatever. <laughs> right, ultimately. Yeah, we're cool, right? And after that, they were fine. Really? Never had a problem, That's right? crazy. And the thing about it was, like, for years, this is sort of percolating in my mm-hmm. brain, right? So very much a specific seed. For years, this is percolating in my brain. And, and what I keep thinking is, like, why the hell did I follow that dude? Mm-hmm. Like, what was that about? It was a really bad idea. You know, I've got a, f- a young family. Like, I am not prepared for anything that will come out of it. Right. Like, I have, no, I have no, I don't own a gun. <laughs> I am not I'm 100% unprepared, right? I don't know how to follow, you know, nothing. But I did it anyway. And so what really stuck with me was that impulse. Like, what is that about, right? The idea that that one small action can, you know, spin you into a new world that you're completely unfamiliar with, Mm -hmm. which was less intense for me than it was in the show, but still pretty intense, right? And also that ultimately the solution to that problem was more about a system and a community and who a person is in a community and my relationship to someone else. It was a much more complicated and subtle and interesting solution than the solution we imagine, which is at some point he breaks in again and I hit him with a hammer and then, you know, that kind of thing. And so realizing that, you know, it sort of led me to think like, well, what is, what is that? Right. And then I sort of married it to it. I'd always wanted to do a doctor show. I'd thought about being a doctor. Um, but I wasn't interested in doing, you know, another doctor show where people bravely save patients <laughs> with science, you know. And, the, and in this case, I was like, well, who, who's the sort of person who would do that? Who's the sort of person who's in that position every day? Who's the sort of person who, you know, would take these things on and would have a lot of resources to bring to the table, right? And so what I came up with was an ER doctor, and sort of marrying those two ideas. And then, as I say, I, I like the idea of thinking about... I'd also read some articles about the idea of violence uh, as an epidemiological phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? Like, 
you can you can sort of treat violence like a spreading sickness, right? And if you know, like, okay, well, there's a lot of violence in this neighborhood, it will spread mm-hmm. if you don't stop it, right? Just like measles or whatever. Uh, but if you get in there quickly and just treat it like, you know, dots on a map, mm-hmm. uh, just like they do for, for disease epidemics, then you can stop it. And yeah, so, there's a great metaphor going on there that yeah. you get to play. And I think that, that makes it not just another medical show. I mean, right. besides the fact that there's not a lot of medical in it. Well, I that's imagine. the yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, it, it is really, as medical shows go, I mean, none of the stories rest on yeah. medicine in particular. That's great. So. Uh, were you able, in the process of developing this for yourself, mm-hmm. um, to kind of answer those questions about why you took this action and kind of explore more deeply the things that happened as the fallout to following this guy? Yeah. No, I absolutely Did you find was, yeah. the, the key? Did you find the Rosetta Stone that you that it seems like you were looking for? I mean, it's a good question. I think, though, that the... I think that really it's sort of an underexplored phenomenon. Um, it's kind of irreducible. It's not a rational decision, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that um, you know, uh, through burn notice and stuff, I, I read a ton of stuff about war and people uh, in combat and that kind of thing. And my experience was by no means that. I don't mean to compare myself to people who truly do that. At the same time, though, um, person after person after person will talk about in war, it is just the guy next to you. It is mm-hmm. just this. And, and, and you don't really think about it, right? You just do it because it seems like the right thing to do. And, you know, we, if you think about television, like the, the phenomenon of the antihero is really thoroughly explored at this point. Like we have really gone down that road. Right. And I love those shows. And I think that's a really, it's a fascinating thing. But at the same time, like what is heroism, you know, is a really important question. Please bear in mind, I'm not casting myself as a hero in this situation. <laughs> but listen, you don't have to. Yeah, well, thank the you, rest thank of you us very much. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, like, but you saved Echo Park. I saved Echo Park. <laughs> yes, from from minor minor burglaries. <laughs> but at this, the but that said, though, like there is this imp- this sort of irreducible impulse to do something, mm-hmm. right? To to intervene and to help, and that you know, a lot of heroic acts, you know, when people run into burning buildings, usually they are not doing a rational calculus before they do it. Like, okay, well, there's this percentage that I'm going to get burned or whatever. No, they just go. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's only afterward that we sort of tell this narrative of why they did it or whatever. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that I guess one thing that I noticed was people recognize that, you know, Mm -hmm. like as I'm, working on the story, people read that. And, and I've heard stories of people have told me stories in their own lives of like when they just sort of impulsively did something mm-hmm. at risk to themselves or whatever. And, and, you know, maybe in some cases it had consequences and in other cases it didn't. Um, you know, I was heard a horrible story about someone losing, uh, someone that they really cared about who dove in to save someone who was drowning and drowned himself. Wow. You know, and right. Um, but it is, you like you say, you don't think about it. It's you an irrational it. decision. It's barely a decision. And then that's what it makes me think of um you know, you say you had this young family, 
I, I'm feeling like that's what was driving it. It it was a protective measure. Yeah, but I mean, it wasn't like the the. It, it certainly wasn't. I mean, really, in the moment, I was thinking about the fact that he was walking toward my friend's house. Right. Mm-hmm. I kind of figured he wasn't going to come back to my house. Right. If for no other reason than that I was getting an alarm the next day. <laughs> right. Um. So it wasn't so much. It didn't. I guess all I can say is it didn't really feel like that in the moment. It didn't mm-hmm. feel like oh, that sort of like I need to stop this man from coming after me. It felt much more like, oh, I need to. Uh, I, I can't. I can't just fob this problem off on someone else. Mm-hmm. Like that. That feels wrong. And so. So yeah, I think that's. You know, and, and exploring how that's related to all the other kinds of actions that we take to help people, which is, you know, sort of antithetical to what medicine, I mean, it's, it, it's exactly what we don't want medicine to be. We mm-hmm. want medicine to be a rational calculation, yeah. right? And that's what, that's an, it was an interesting thing to explore on the show. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that, well, that impulse to help is irrational. That impulse to help, right. you're not sitting down and like laying out a treatment plan. But what we want from our doctors is that they, they do that. Yeah. How do you dramatize that? process how do you dramatize the the non-decision and then the looking back on the non-decision of action you know the the immediate action uh and like all of the all of the fallout the emotional fallout well i mean certainly in the case of of complications like he is sort of traumatized by this event and so he's remembering it but at the same time like the the big thing in the show i mean it's a thriller so Mm -hmm. like ultimately a lot of what happens is just he is called upon hours later <laughs> to make another decision, right? And the and and ultimately his every action. I mean, it's called complications for a reason. His every action, as in the case of a uh, you know a medical decision, um, nothing is simple. Like you mm-hmm. can, yeah, you can solve this particular problem in this moment, but it is going to sort of play that, that problem, the problem, right. the new problem that you've created is going to play itself out over the next few episodes and, and that kind of thing. So really that the dramatization was, was just about finding new, new situations to put the main character in. And he hooks up with, uh, a nurse in the hospital played by Jessica Zor from gossip girl. Um, who's terrific. Uh, this, this nurse Gretchen, who has her own take on that kind of thing. And once she finds uh, that she has a doctor who is kind of willing to go down this road with her, um, she's got her own stuff going on, and she starts taking him way further than he wanted to go. And so they end up in this sort of uneasy partnership uh, where he definitely needs her, but she's she's also like, well, if we're doing this, it's on, so help me out. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, it sounds really cool. It's fun. Uh, what was the... Did, I assume you pitched it uh, before writing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and did the pitch sound like what you just told us? Was it... Did yeah. you tell that story? Yeah. 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 I would imagine so. Yeah. People like to hear this is a personal story. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of like... <laughs> I don't even know that they listened to the pitch after the story. <laughs> like, they were sort of like, yeah, that's okay. So you got to... <laughs> is there a TV show too? Right. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that... I certainly I think it's something that I always say to writers when they ask me for advice on pitching like if if you don't I know actually listen to your podcast a bunch of times and everybody gives the same advice it's good advice but yeah if you if you don't have that thing if you don't have that personal connection to something um you know it's funny because like eh, I, I remember like I was like oh, okay well I've 
I've run some shows and like I can sell things now. And, you know, I went in one time with this thing that was just a good idea for a TV show, mm-hmm. right? And it was a good idea for a TV <laughs> show. And I was like, I've reached the status where I can just sell like a good idea for a TV show. And I went in and I, I won't say who I was in with, but they, they were basically <laughs> like, we will buy this if you want us to buy this. <laughs> You know what I mean? But what we'd really like is, right. you know, know what you're something to. that we would really like something that you're more connected. And I was like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Forget I did this. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. You're right. It was that's just a good idea for a TV show that I'm not particularly connected yeah. to. And I, I have no business doing that. But that's a hard thing to learn because it, not that it's easy to come up with just a good idea to a TV show, but. You know, this is what we do. We can yeah. come up with a good idea to a TV show, but to find the thing that you really care about or that is a story that you feel like needs to be told mm-hmm. is is a tough thing. Well, and it's funny. I think, that, like, in the case of that particular idea, and I was thinking about it the other day, and I realized, like, oh, well, okay, but I just sort of let that let that ferment, put that on mm-hmm. the back burner, and eventually, like, it comes around as an idea that you're more connected to, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Sure. But, um... Yeah, that's a huge, a huge factor. <laughs> because the other thing is, and I, I've said this to people before, like, you don't really, it's not a question of whether you can write a good pilot. I mean, let's say you're a good writer and, um, yeah, okay, you sit down and you write a great pilot. The real question is, can you write a good episode seven mm-hmm. after your original episode seven has been blown up and you only have like 36 hours to turn in a really good episode seven? And if you can turn in, a really good episode seven under those circumstances, you're good to go. I mean, assuming like the right promotion and time slot and that sort of thing, but basically like you've got a show then. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you can't do that, if you're like, Oh, well we'll hire some writers and we'll have a writer's room for episode seven. No, you won't. Hmm. No, you won't. You'll have a writer's room that can help you with the episode seven that you're deeply connected to. That you're well, really and that's, that was something I wanted to ask about. Uh, I imagine it was what was the initial order on complications? It was uh, ten. Okay, I mean, so it was like that's, that's a reasonable number yeah. to. It was great. You know, tell a story, mm-hmm. uh, and and again, leave it for a second season, whatever. But I, I assume you know you had no trouble finding the personal story in every episode that you wanted to tell, or attaching yourself emotionally to every episode, the story in every episode. Well, what was actually wonderful for us is for just due to quirks of like when it got ordered and when mm-hmm. it was on and the whole thing, we were not up against any air dates. I mean, the whole show is mm-hmm. done and the whole show has been done by the time the pilot airs, the whole show will have been done for, you know, uh, six months mm-hmm. or something like that. So, um, we had a long writer prep period. So the great That's thing right. was we were able to, um, I was able to find, uh, like I was able to be wrong, mm-hmm. you know, like get a do it. We did a whole episode in the middle of the season. We wrote it out. I went in. I remember sitting with the writers and I was like <laughs> reading the outline. And I'm halfway through the outline. and I look at the writers and I'm like, is this boring? Because I think this is boring. And they're like, we kind of think it's boring. And I was like, oh, wow. they were like, we have some fixes. And, blah, blah. and I was like, I don't think we can fix boring. <laughs> and so we we were able to throw it out revise everything, rearrange the entire season and really find those personal stories that we were connected to mm-hmm. and, and that I was connected to throughout the season. And fortunately I, you know, I had a great team of writers and, um, and 
like and my my uh, uh, another executive producer on the show, Mike Horowitz, came over with me from Burn Notice, and this was his opportunity to like fix everything that he thought was wrong with how I ran <laughs> Burn Notice, and so. He was basically like, we are starting and we are at a dead run from the very beginning. Your due date is now. You know what I mean? And so, but it was great because we had everything done early and and that kind of thing. I think it's sometimes like when you look at people talk about, um, you know, a show I admire very much, Breaking Bad and, and the shows like that. And people ignore oftentimes or don't realize just how much it matters for a show like that, which I know had an extremely long writer prep period, right? Just how much that matters, right? Because if you're really working hard through a long writer prep and you're not up against an air date, you can do great stuff that like that show used to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, oh, let's plant an Easter egg in episode three that pays off in episode nine. You can't do that if you already shot episode three And episode nine is, you know, like, and you're frantically writing episode nine. All you can do is be like, oh, oh, I guess if we planted this in episode three, it would be awesome. And but it's too late on the the, the right. normal production schedule. Yeah, yeah, you're so. just you're just racing it. Yeah, you're just playing catch up <laughs> from the time you sit down. Yeah, I mean, it, actually, like you think about, you know, the the, the big example of that is Lost. Yeah. But like, you know, if Lost. If they'd been able to write a season of Lost every other year, mm-hmm. we would, like, there would be lo- tons of people walking around with no faces because their faces would have been melted <laughs> off by how awesome Lost was, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, when you think about what people demanded of that show, right, it is, it's not possible. Like, you mm-hmm. can't physically do it on a production schedule where you have to like you know shoot a bunch of stuff in Hawaii I'm Absolutely. making excuses for a show that I, I, I don't. well and and they've said the same thing it's yeah. like we it was a TV show it was a moving train we just had to catch up and you know try to pay things off as satisfactorily as we could where we could but if some things weren't too bad yeah that's but, the nature of the uh, of the medium having always done the moving train thing though it was so yeah. it was such a joy to be like okay the trains <laughs> at the station we're gonna pack the boxes this way oh look the boxes aren't fitting in the fourth car like mm-hmm. let's we'll move put in different boxes and then you know the train goes and yeah, I mean, that's actually an analogy that people use in television all the time of, like, the trains have to run on time. And it's like, yeah, they have to run on time, but they also have to not have horse shit in them. You know what I mean? <laughs> Those two things, both very important. Um, back to the, this, this question of caring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, as I said, it, it, I'm sure it was not necessarily easy, but an easier prospect on complications because it's the first season it's 10 episodes but when you get to burn notice was on for what 30 years yeah. <laughs> seven but yeah when you get to episodes. season five of a show how do you how do you still put yourself in in you know episode eight of season five that's a really good question i mean i think though that you have to ideally your DNA, like the the thing that you really care about writing, um, is so deeply ingrained in how that story works that you're always going to find part of you in it because it's always that character and it's always that approach and it's always that procedure. I mean, I think that's particularly true with a procedural show. Mm-hmm. People don't talk about this that much, but... Um, the unity of procedure and character 
is incredibly important. And I think if you look at the great procedural shows like House um, or, or you know, Bones, like mm-hmm. that's been on forever. And why? Like, you know, that is that's not a show with like a hardcore procedure. Right. But it's a show where the the nature of the characters and the nature of the procedure is very well matched, mm-hmm. right? And the so that whenever someone's doing a procedural beat, they can you can also serve as character, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with House, right? And that was true of Burn Notice as well, yeah, for sure. Like we really worked hard, and and it was sort of in the DNA of the show from the beginning that that show was so much about the relationships between the team and the nature of friendship and the nature of loyalty and the, and, and, and the relationship of love to that Mm -hmm. and all of those things that any one episode, um, could address character issues as well as, you know, so I, I, you know, I won't lie. Like by season five, you're like, how do you get into a room (laughs) in a way that we haven't gotten into a room before. Like yeah. we've gone through the window, the door, the ceiling, the air conditioning unit, <laughs> the floor that like every possible way of getting into a room you've done. And that's incredibly difficult. But the basic feeling of the story, the idea that these people are going to be put in an impossible situation, like an impossible physical situation and, and ideally an, an impossible moral situation. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, this group of basically decent people who care about each other and who care about other people are going to try to find a way to square an impossible circle mm-hmm. and solve an impossible problem and resolve an impossible moral quandary in a way that takes where the you know the bad guys get theirs and the good guys get what they have coming to them you know etc mm-hmm. and that for whatever reason, and it's funny, like I didn't, I discovered this through writing. I never sat down. I was like, this is the theme that I enjoy exploring. Mm-hmm. It was really like, I just realized at a certain point, like I, that was true in Burn Notice. That was true in The Good Guys in a very different mm-hmm. way. Another show I did for Fox. Um, th- that's true in Complications in a very different way from both of those mm-hmm. shows, you know, but the, like I tend to gravitate to the theme of decent people trying to take care of other people in really difficult situations, you know? Yeah. So less true of the comedians, uh, the, uh, but well, there Wexler were shades of that. Himself Wexler, that. yeah, exactly. Wexler got into the mix. Yeah. His, his nihilist bent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was curious about, you know, what a Matt Nix show is. And I wondered if that was something that you are, aware of and it sounds like you are now at least but was that something uh, that thematic awareness something that developed over time or you know were you halfway through Bernardus going well as I look to do other things these are the sort of situations I'm interested in these are the sort of characters I'm interested so I may as well chase that I mean no honestly it's for me it's like I'm gonna sit down and do something totally different (laughs) I'm gonna blow their minds (laughs) this is gonna be thematically unlike anything I've ever done before and then I sit down and I write and I'm like oh that's me again (laughs) right like and and I think that that I think that's actually kind of a good process in the Mm -hmm. sense that like for better or worse, I do care about a particular thing. You know, I really do. I, and I, I like, and I actually care about that in the world, you Mm -hmm. know, like I, it's, it's a thing that, you know, like 
uh, just in my interactions with my staff and, you know, the studio, everybody, like just as a showrunner, if you, if you said like, what does Matt do? You know, like he does a lot of like trying to take care of everybody <laughs> in challenging situations on a really tight time de- <laughs> deadline. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's how I experience my life. And so, yeah. um, and and I'm very concerned in general with like people coming out okay on the other side of of challenging situations. Now I'm I'm sure there are enemies of mine listening to this right now who are like Sh- bullshit, man. Go right in, but uh, yeah, enemies yeah. of Matt, uh, <laughs> yeah. tweet us. <laughs> yeah, but it is. Uh, but that is a theme that I come back to, and I think it's mm. it's it's not ultimately a bad thing to have something that you really care about and that you can explore in different ways. Oh, for sure. And so yeah, I'm developing a, a show for sci-fi now. And that's not even it's I'm not the principal writer on it, but I, I uh, worked on the story mm-hmm. and it was just interesting seeing those themes come out even in that, you know, sure. in a different way. But uh, the other thing is I like uh, and I, I never would have thought this about myself growing up, but I tend to gravitate to stories with action. I just do, <laughs> you know, like complication has a, has a lot of action. Burnout has had an enormous amount of action. Mm-hmm. The good guys. Um, well, you were like a real nerdy film guy, right? Yeah, but yeah. So, like, I would have if you'd asked me when I was starting out, like, what do you think you'll be? The, uh, what do you think you'll write? I wouldn't have said like I will. I mean, I really think that I am America's leading writer of scenes where cars drive into structures, <laughs> right? Like, I don't think there's anyone in oh, America. Someone, please put together a supercut. <laughs> Of anything, and from any of Matt's shows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Cars, dri- cars I mean, could, driving into structures. From yeah. Good Guys alone. Yeah, Good Guys, yeah. No minutes. I personally <laughs> have directed multiple episodes. Like, so we're forgetting about all the episodes where, you know, like, like I just the other day sold a brand new show to Fox Network that contains that scene. You know what I mean? Like, I love cars driving into structures, right? And it's and awesome. It's a new you variation should. on it, yeah. I mean, it's a metaphor. Yeah, it's but. a metaphor. For, yeah, exactly, <laughs> totally. But it's uh, breaking down walls, barriers, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, so So what was the stuff... What did you see... Your, what kind of stories did you see yourself telling, if not these very action-oriented uh, stories. I mean, you know, I guess I, I, I was sort of like, you know, I grew up on Woody Allen. And, yeah, you know, that's I right. I think I remember talking about And, and that kind of thing. And, I, yeah, I just, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't really that guy. But then I look at sort of things that I read. I, I did care about those kinds of stories. And then I remember being in, uh, in college, and I was in an, a creative writing class, and everybody's writing these, like, very personal, emotional <laughs> stories. And I write a story about two kids that get trapped in a river below a dam and one of them can't get out of the river and the water level is rising and his friend has to save him and the kid, you know, and like, and the story turned out great, Mm. but I swear to God, going into this writing workshop, everyone looked at me like I, what, it was black magic, what I had done. Like, what is this? Like, no one is sad and lonely in this. And... I was like, oh, that's, they were like, you should publish this in Boy's Life. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. There was a great essay, this was probably 15 years ago already, uh, that Michael Chabon wrote for a McSweeney's collection about why are we afraid of genre stories? Mm-hmm. Why are we afraid to put the trappings of genre on a personal story about two boys <laughs> stuck in mm-hmm. a river? You know, like, that ticking clock m- drives the story. When it's a, just a story about mm-hmm. the relationship or whatever it is, or about survival, or whatever. But like, you know, 
these things were really popular for a long time. Why did they go out of fashion? I think they're back to an extent. Um, I think, you know, Harry Potter and, and just the world we live in, the Comic-Conning of mm-hmm. America has sort of led it to be back. But, you know, there was a period for about 30, 40 years where these kinds of stories were not considered serious stories. Well, yeah, and you think sort of like Charles Dickens mm-hmm. gets... Uh, kind of grandfathered in as a serious writer, you know, but you want to say like, okay, English literature professors, like if the new Charles Dickens sat down and started, you know, like we can just describe all the things about Charles Dickens, very popular, mm-hmm. writing serialized stories, yeah. clearly write rich, you know, I mean? like, oh, he's Stephen King. Yeah, he's Stephen King. Yeah, he is Who Stephen King. Who has also become, you know, sort of canonized. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah Michael Chabon is, is one of my heroes and he writes stories about people like stuff is happening to people and he he also writes you know stories that that have an examination of internal character Mm -hmm. that give them a sort of gravitas and Mm -hmm. a a feeling of importance but there's there's nothing self-important about his stories no and i i really admire that yeah Yeah. and and i think you know in a sort of post-buffy world we get to do this on tv too Mm -hmm. it's you know that show is the perfect marriage of store of a, a metaphor and genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like this is something that any good writer is looking for. And it, and it sounds like this is what you found with complications is you found the metaphor that works. And I think you found it with burn notice too. Um, let's go going back to burn notice. Uh, you know, again, seven years is a long time to work mm-hmm. on a show. Um, seven seasons, I should say it's probably longer yeah. for you. Um, what did you learn from that process that you've now taken to complications besides having someone say, Hey, here's what we did wrong. Um, well, that's, that's a good question. Yeah. One thing is I, I learned not to be afraid of evolving story and tone. Right. Um, because, you know, that show was a very different show by the end than it Mm -hmm. was at the beginning. I mean, it was very, uh, (laughs) <laughs> it was it was very interesting. Yeah, I could always tell like when because a lot of the the reviewers or you know TV people just sort of stopped watching or caring mm-hmm. or anything. So by the end they'd be like, "Yeah, Bernard is just doing something frothy, you know, they're not candy <laughs> colored." And I was like, "Yeah, on, you know, th- there'll be like word. some episode where like Michael Weston is walking through a burning orphanage, and, like <laughs> the children are lying down, and they'll be like, eh, another <laughs> next week on Burn Notice, <laughs> Michael's in hot water." Um, the uh, but. So yeah, we, evolving um, and and not being afraid to sort of really take characters in new directions because as as the show went on, by certainly by the sixth and seventh season, we we're like, well, we're here, like we're not going anywhere. We're gonna be here, and so we can afford to take some risks and and actually move the characters along. Um, I certainly learned how to tell a serialized story. The the last two seasons of that show were entirely serialized. Yeah. Um, we had, they were like little mini series. Yeah. We had really kind of neat. stopped doing, uh, you know, uh, kind of client of the week kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also say kind of looking at my own, um, kind of evolution as a writer, you know, I went into television having never worked in television, you know, burn notice was basically my first TV script. Mm-hmm. And so the, when I look back on, particularly the middle of that run, 
uh, it was a little hard for me to balance. Like, how much do you guys like, Hey audience, like how much do you guys want the, the, the story, this kind of client of the week story, the, you know, to follow, like, what do you, what do you want to be in every episode versus what should be only in some episodes? And, and, that balance is always something that you're tr- trying to strike. Like mm-hmm. what is the, what things must be repeated and what things shouldn't be repeated. Like people used to talk about house, you know, being formulaic. And I was mm. like, and I'd ask them like, what, what do you mean by formulaic? And it's like, well, you know, he like, they don't know what the disease is and then they figure <laughs> it out. And I'm like, well, that's why you're watching the show. <laughs> exactly. Like, that's not, that's not fair. <laughs> you know, like that you can't, it, it's like, you know, this week, Dr. House accidentally kills a bunch of people. Like, do you want to see that one? Right. You actually don't want to see that one. Right. You just. And so for me, kind of, uh, I I feel like I learned a lot, especially in the middle of that show about, um, oh, yeah, like we don't need to rest on on certain aspects of formula. Mm -hmm. And then there are other aspects of formula we really do need to hang on to. Like Mm -hmm. people don't want to see the character interactions change so radically yeah. that these people that they've come to think of as friends and they, they enjoy those interactions. They don't want to see that change, but they do, you know, can stand more variations. Right. So. The, the mechanics of the piece can change. It's, I mean, it's interesting too, that in those seven seasons, TV change. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, I, I feel like burn notice probably along with house and a couple of others were among the first shows to sort of do that procedural with character. Right. You know, and USA was known for that for a long time. Um, but over the course of those seven seasons, <clears throat> viewers started moving away from uh, procedural, from mm-hmm. the case of the week, from Cagney and Lacey, <laughs> to Although, a more serialized thing. What, what I think is interesting about that, though, is, like, what we can definitely say is that listeners of things like the Nerdist Writers mm-hmm. Podcast moved away from that, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that we, it, like, people just don't talk that much about NCIS, sure. the most popular show in the whole world, <laughs> right? And the that said, though, I mean, I think you're right. Uh, like, that's a show that is, again, very much character and procedure mm-hmm. and a unity of character and procedure. It's not a show where you could like easily swap out a bunch of people. And uh like the procedure is not the star of that show. Yeah. Right. Oh, absolutely. And in I think that's way, again, yeah. CBS kind of did that for a long time. Right. In the same way USA did that for a long time is who who are who is the interesting character and what is the procedural world that we surround him yeah, with. Yeah. Absolutely. Um but you look at I mean, I feel like the target now for so many of these networks, both networks and cable, is Game of Thrones and right. Breaking Bad. And while these did not do enormous number, I mean, Breaking Bad by the end did, but while they don't do enormous numbers, are the people making TV the Nerdist Writers Panel listeners, you know? Yeah. The ones who are talking about that this is the shift? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think the... And the, if they are, why aren't they giving me a show? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. you got to work that, man. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting phenomenon. I mean, I think there's a, there's a definite business argument for Mm -hmm. the Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad kind of thing, which is to say, um, if something's super buzzy and popular within the, the television kind of establishment, um, it's a lot easier to get free press. You know, you're going to get like your, your presence in the, you're going to get awards. Your presence in the television landscape is just going to be outsized 
you know, vis-a-vis your numbers, yeah. um, which is a super valuable thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's actually like people, if you have that, then you get dollars that you can spend on stuff you like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's a, that's a big deal. Um, the, uh, so I think that that's very important. I think there's also like what drives, I mean, one thing that we were certainly conscious of in complications is, you know, that's definitely a show that ends on cliffhangers. Mm-hmm. Right. And for a couple reasons, one is it really drives like I got to watch next week. Right. And two, it makes it more binge worthy. Right. And that I think can help in a lot of ways. Like a binge worthy show means that people can start watching in season two because Mm -hmm. they can sit down and watch all the episodes of season one. And you can see a thing like in Breaking Bad where you get to 10 million viewers by the end. Like that was impossible before. Literally that could never, ever happen. But now you have to hope that the network realizes that. And I think USA is smart about that in doing, you know, a serialized show that they're going to realize that people are going to jump on at the end. Mm -hmm. So they'll, they'll, hold off and then you know yeah i mean i think they they realize that's sort of where the where television is going and and that kind of thing um and and wanting to be part of that uh but at the same time like there is a whole other way of watching television which is just like people are um you know living their lives and they're making soup and the television's (laughs) on and you know, <laughs> like the way you see most of the world. <laughs> well, I don't know. They're hanging out making soup. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's, probably that's it. what people do. Out Listen, in the world. I'm, yeah. I'm running into burning buildings. <laughs> they're, doing. they're just making soup, probably causing fires <laughs> for me to run into. Well, no, I mean, actually, like th- the truth is one of the things that I realized about Burn Notice, like cards on the table Burn Notice was not a buzzy show in the Hollywood community. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that they did what is Burn Notice like on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> right. They did that, right? <laughs> like and like how many times I can't tell you how much fun it is to sit down and read a newspaper article that begins with although it never reached the levels of cultural currency of its peers, you know, like Mad Men and you know it's like thanks guys, really? We okay, we need to mention other shows in this, you know, like Right. Like and then it's and then they come around to like Burn Notice this year has been doing great things. I mean, can we just start with that? Like, just <laughs> less frothy than it used to be. Yeah, but the but the thing about it is, one thing that I realized going out in the world, like Burn Notice, really big military audience. Sure, Burn Notice, like not a show with an audience concentrated on the coasts, mm-hmm. right? And it's really fun to go out into the world and, and interact with fans who are not in that space, you know? And there's no question that going through Hollywood, it's like, you know, people are not like, I mean, television executives are aware that it was like a successful Mm -hmm. show. So it's like, you know, it's not like they don't let me in the meetings, but (laughs) the, uh, but you know, if, if you go down to like, you know, we, we, we could go down the street to the Soho house and be like, hey, it's me. I'm uh, the creator of Burn Notice. I'm right over here. Right. People are not going to be like, Burn Notice, really? That action show on, UC, on USA? Um, and uh, the, uh, yeah, actually, quick, quick story. I went, yeah. I went, I was, I had a, I went to UCLA and I was invited back to do a speaking engagement. And, um, I was like speaking to this group and, and they, they'd been sort of a little bit funky about getting my bio and, uh, like 
there'd been some confusion. Anyway, I sat down and they're introducing me and they're like, introducing Maddox. He wrote these uh, feature screenplays and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and then he went into television where he is now an executive producer on The Family Guy. Right. And there's a huge wow. applause. And then they're like, he also created a show called Burn Notice. Right. During the applause. And I get up and I'm like, <laughs> oh, hi. <laughs> this I mean, I'm speaking to this huge audience and I'm like this I should just start by saying there's a guy who went to UCLA named Steve Callahan terrific guy he is one of the executive producers of The Family Guy which is a wonderful show oh clearly all of you like it he is probably a wonderful speaker you should get him at some point I however am not him <laughs> right exactly I am the other guy so I was like oh if if I was going to have any ego ever go right. about like going back to UCLA hey guys look who look who made it big oh. like oh you guys don't care at all but that's rough the uh, but yeah so the the point is like going out into the into sort of places that are not Hollywood mm-hmm. um, one of the things I realized to go back to the soup question is that the way people watch TV, people watch mm-hmm. TV in very different ways, right? And and when you think about a show like Mad Men or Breaking Bad, people are watching those shows like movies, mm-hmm. right? No, v- very few people are going like, "There's Don Draper, my friend," right? Or "There's Walter White, my friend." And actually, there are some people who are, who are saying, "There's Walter White, my friend," and those guys are weird, <laughs> right? Um, but. When it comes to a different kind of show, right, mm-hmm. they say – they certainly said, there are Michael, Fiona, and Sam, my friends. For sure. Right? I mean, and that's the, the classic television model. Mm-hmm. And, and we learned that pitching 20 years ago is create characters that people want to spend time with. Right. And they feel like they're in your they, – you know, those guys Absolutely. are in my house. They are physically in my and house. That was always the I difference know? between yeah. TV and movies. Right. And so now I think we have television shows – that are basically movies, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't think it's an accident that a lot of the television shows that are basically movies have far fewer episodes, mm-hmm. right? Because that's hard to sustain. Like, at a certain point, like, they have to do really interesting things because they're not your friends and you're not going to be like, oh, you didn't do anything that exciting this week, but I want you around anyway because, right. I'm, you know, I want you keeping me company while I'm making soup. Yeah, And the... And I, I actually, the reason I said making soup was, <laughs> I, I was actually early on, um, like, Mad Men was actually on opposite Burn Notice when it first came out, which was awesome. Oh the, um, and uh, uh, I was trying to cook. I was actually make. I was literally making soup, <laughs> right? And I was trying to watch Mad Men while making soup. And that is impossible. No, you can't. That is not a thing that, it, that, I, is not a thing that you can do. I'm absolutely on board. Yeah, yeah. Images can appear on a screen while you are making right. soup, but you have not watched. No. You have not watched an episode of Mad Men. You have like, heard ele- pieces of an episode. <laughs> but I think there are the nice thing about TV now. One of the nice things about TV now is that we're, we as creators can find a balance. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like this is what you're doing with complications. Is like I I want people that I want to have characters that people want to spend time with. But I'm also giving you a story with emotional depth and, right. you know, a, a, a big canvas to explore. And you do have to pay attention. You can make soup, but it better be quick. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or it's... <laughs> it better be instant. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the... I think that fundamentally, 
one thing that is still true of complications, and I, I think this is kind of in the DNA of USA, which is really trying some interesting things now. I mean, uh, I don't know if you've mm-hmm. spoken to anybody about Mr. Robot, but that's yeah, a yeah. that's a totally. I mean, USA's never done that show, but nobody's done that show. Yeah. I mean, that's a really different show, and I think Complications, in its way, is also a really different show. I mean, like it seems like it's not. It's not really. Uh, I, I've never seen it. Certainly not on television now. Um, but fundamentally, I think that the USA viewer is interested in liking the people mm-hmm. on the screen, and that, in a funny way, does make it a good home for me <laughs> because I like liking the people yeah, on the screen, sure. and you know, and I like writing about fundamentally decent people who you want to exist in the world, mm-hmm. right? And so those people, like, the narrative can get more complex or, you know, it can be more emotionally subtle or it can be darker. This is certainly a darker show than Burn Notice. I mean, it's actually maybe a darker show than early Burn Notice. Like, mm-hmm. you know, later Burn Notice was pretty dark. But, um, the, uh, but you know, fundamentally, you're watching a story about someone trying to do something good. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I care about and it's something that fits well in that network in its, even in its new incarnation, so... That's great. Okay. Yeah. It's good to hear. And yeah, and it's it's interesting seeing a lot of these networks <clears throat> both leaning into their brands and exploring how far they can stretch mm-hmm. those brands. You know, it, and USA is a great example of it. It's it's cool seeing what they're doing now. And I wish, like, it would be great to see AMC do that instead of saying you're going to be challenged by every show. Right. Like, bend that a little bit. Yeah. Let's I mean, see what happens when you put a comedy on the air. It's interesting to see though, like when you interact with executives and these are all smart people mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily understand their brands i think that's true you know they don't they sit down and they're like okay well what seems to be the thing that's working like mm-hmm. what let's go through um you know is it uh i mean to take the usa branding it's like oh is it is it single leads snarky single leads in nice clothing is that it right and then something succeeds that isn't that and you're like okay maybe it's not maybe they don't have to be snarky but it seems like the nice clothing's important (laughs) do they have to be in vacation spots oh actually no one of them was in new york so i guess not uh and then they sort of dial in something and then and then I think, you know, in the case of USA, it's sort of like, well, then you figure it out, and then, oh, well, then it's kind of played out. By the time you've figured it out, you're kind of done, right? And then, of course, you know, AMC has, like, (laughs) they put on, like, a bunch of opposite shows, right? right? And then they did well, right? And so, like, what is their their brand? (laughs) I don't know. Like, it's, uh, and I don't, it's, it'll be interesting to see, like, kind of as time goes on, and there's more over the top, and... Because, you know, these days, everyone's looking at it like, well, what if everybody has to pay six bucks for my channel? You know, why will they do that? And so you get, you know, I think like FX right now is in a good position. Like people, people know what their six bucks. I mean, Mm -hmm. in in an over the top world, if you have to pay six bucks for FX, Mm -hmm. you know why you're paying six bucks for FX. You know, right. They may not all be the same, but you're getting a high quality uh, and distinct voices from those shows. Yeah, that's interesting. And then I think, you know, if you were paying six bucks for AMC right now, or I mean, let's, let's, you know, roll the dial back six months or whatever, Mm -hmm. there would be a bunch of people who are paying six six bucks for Mad Men and a bazillion people who are paying six bucks for, for, uh, walking dead. But 
the not necessarily so much crossover between those two audiences. Yeah. You know what I mean? So maybe that's a network where people are paying for individual shows. You know, it's uh, but yeah, it's sort of interesting to think about like how much will branding matter if networks are going to su- survive? It's going to matter a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Because at a certain point, you know, you, you could get to the point where it's just like, well, let's go over the top. It's you want to pay six bucks to see whatever Joss Whedon has. Uh, certainly, there are a bunch of people who will. Yeah. Right. So, you know, maybe he's a channel. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, have you, in your development over the years, looked into these other, you know, non-network outlets? Have you dealt with Netflix or Amazon or Yahoo or any of these entities? Some. I mean, yeah, we've had some conversations. The thing is, um, I'm under a deal at Fox, and so you kind of have to figure out who plays nice with whom. Um, So, yeah, we... uh, uh, I've pitched those places, (laughs) um, but those models are... They're a little bit... (laughs) Yeah, not to go too deep, um, but the thing about it is they are typically making money in exactly the way that a studio would normally mm-hmm. make money, right? They're not in the world of, like, paying licensing fees. They really kind of need to essentially own their content. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, maybe a studio can sell something abroad or, you right. know, there, there may be something. But then when Netflix is Netflix all around the world... What's left for the studio yeah, that after, makes sense. you know, so it's and, and they're working out those deals and everybody understands that they have to work out those deals that like nobody can survive in right. a world where nobody can play well together. But it is really interesting watching these like gigantic corporate behemoths that, you know, you do a deal with them and they're arguing over every word <laughs> in the contract. But they realize like, oh, wait a second, like we have to work out an entirely new business model in the next two months because the whole world just shifted like a few weeks ago because Breaking Bad did $10 million for its, or 10 million viewers for its finale. You know what I mean? Like that's, oh, I guess the whole world is different now. Lawyers go to work. Yeah, you we know? haven't had to change in 30 years, but now we need to do it now. Yeah, we, we, yeah and, and they just need to work it out. And so like I remember... Uh, a a couple years ago, um, it was stacking. I mean, do you, have you talked about stacking? No, I'd never heard of it. Right, and then it was like for a moment, the whole it was almost like the in the financial crash when like nobody could borrow money. You know what right. I mean? It's like suddenly there was a, this month where everyone's like, no one can do a deal because stacking, right? <laughs> and I'm like, what is stacking? Right? <laughs> it's like it's the thing that's destroying Hollywood. Stacking, right? <laughs> and I, I actually had to corner someone and be like, explain stacking because it's stopping me from doing what I want. <laughs> right? And uh, and it turns out that it's basically you're a network. How many things can you show on demand at once? Hmm. Can you show the whole season? Mm-hmm. Right? Because if you can show the whole season, then if I'm the studio and I own it, well, no one's buying it on iTunes anymore. Right? right? No one's. And, and how long can you show it? And so, you know, it's, to what extent is it your show versus my show? And so it, it all had to sort of work out to, I mean, the reason that on any one day for a lot of shows you can only see four of them mm-hmm. on uh, on the, the on-demand services for a particular thing is oftentimes that a studio has basically – they've worked out the stacking rights and they've been like, well – you know, we're going to give you enough episodes that anybody who's watching the show on your air can catch up, 
but we're not going to give you so many episodes that you can just eat our business whole. Right. That's interesting. So, but yeah, literally, that all had to be worked out over the course of a couple of months. It didn't exist. It was three years ago. Yeah, that's really funny. Everyone's like, "Let's sell these round objects that you can put in a machine, right?" right? And then everyone's like, "Round objects? Who needs round (laughs) objects? I don't even remember what those things are called." (laughs) The machines are telling me what to watch now. (laughs) Exactly. What is this DVD machine doing (laughs) under my television? Um, I I think that is uh, about all the time we have. Terrific. I think we did it. So. The 18th yes. on USA. 18th on USA. Uh, you are proud of this show? I'm very proud of the show. We'll be showing <laughs> the uh, the first episode and the second episode. Oh, nice. So in a, a limited commercial two-hour block. Cool. So, yes. Um, and, and then when, actually, yeah. uh, apropos of stacking rights, the third episode will be available on demand right away. Oh, wow. So That's really cool. anybody who wants to see all three episodes can do so. Nice. Um, and meanwhile, we should say, like, you, we, we didn't, we barely mentioned, uh, the comedians, mm-hmm. which you were involved with, uh, co-created, yes. Co-created, yes. Uh, which is so much fun. I mean, I know we've talked about it here a lot because we had Wexler here and, uh, it's a really good show and congratulations. It and turned out really well. It was super exciting to work on and, and unlike anything I'd ever worked on and yeah. Ben did an amazing job. So yeah, that, that was, was, uh, at some point you should bring in. A bunch of drama writers who've worked on comedies, just so that you can talk about the weird cultural, like sitting in a like as a drama writer sitting in a comedy room and just being like, and then this story point, and everyone's like, what are you doing? Why do you keep pitching story points? Yeah, too much story. Yes, jokes, more jokes. And I'm like, but then this happens, you know. So That's it was really uh, it was a really it was a really fun. But I uh, that that was my my main thing on that show was That's like awesome. interesting. I I've, I've never done this. <laughs> So, yeah, but anyway, you can sit around and bullshit for hours and hours. Isn't that better? Yeah, actually, yeah. There's a lot more. There's a lot more bullshitting. There's and and the food was better, um, and the room bits were much more sophisticated. Though, like, sure. uh, yeah, it was just like because we had things. I, I, yeah, drama rooms. Like you have things that you say to to make each other laugh, but like. <laughs> Oh wow! It's just a whole. It's just like <laughs> seven levels up from that as a comedy writer's room. <laughs> like that is awesome. So yeah, it was, uh, it was do you have interest in doing more comedy? Yeah, absolutely. That'd yeah, be great. Yeah, totally. I think we'd like to see it. We'd like to see you stretch a little bit. Let's yes, I will stretch further. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there'll still be about more decent people, people saving making people. jokes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, one more jokes. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, what are you watching on television these days? What is getting you excited or inspired? And what are you talking to your friends and loved ones about? You've actually had some downtime, right? Yes, I actually have. Yeah, I, uh, I've been watching the, the logical combination of Penny Dreadful and um, Last Man on Earth. Uh, oh, so good. Clearly. Both yeah. of those are great. Yeah, I, uh, I've actually been, like, collaring people in the streets and just being like, watch Penny Dreadful. Watch it. It's really It is fun so good. And right? cool. Yeah. Like, it looks great, and yeah. it's well-acted. I will say, though, like, one thing, having worked on Basic Cable, that is very difficult for me about watching shows like Penny Dreadful, is I'm sitting there, and I'm like, wait a second. You built an entire yeah. Victorian ping-pong parlor <laughs> with 50 ping-pong tables for that scene? Yeah. Like, one scene that that's not that's a scene they would make me cut like just because not enough happens like and you built a whole Victorian ping pong parlor for that in fairness they're not crashing cars through walls uh, you know you know I'm gonna fight you on this because I was I was looking I was looking at one scene there and I was like okay I'm gonna take out all of Victorian London I'm gonna take out the horses. I'm going to take out the dogs. I'm going to take out the witches, right? And I'm just, I'm going to take out the snow. 
and I'm just going to leave that many extras mm-hmm. in period costumes. <laughs> and I'm just going to write that many extras in period <laughs> costumes, and I'm going to send it to the studio, and they're going to be like, screw you. No. <laughs> Don't ever do this to me. No, 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 no. Right. But they get to do all of those things and and more. But, yeah, it's a terrific That's show. So I've really funny. been enjoying it. And Last Man on Earth is, is I'm sure you guys have talked about it a bunch. It's not enough. It's, well, it's it such what we're talking about. What's really exciting about like those shows and, and there are a bunch of them on now that are that are doing. I mean, uh, uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, like they're just mm-hmm. all these shows that are just like breaking all of the forms and yeah. doing all these new things and you know I hope I hope everything's successful so that we get to keep totally. doing it it's terrific totally. uh, well Matt thank you so much for being here thank you so much really appreciate we did it Good we're man. shaking hands we're shaking hands <laughs> no one can hear it now leaving nerdist.com